millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. One more in the DLI series. I'm once more with Peter Hart. Morning, Pete. Morning. Morning, Gary. Morning. That's very dramatic, don't you think? And you're Gary Bain, aren't you? I am Gary Bain. Lovely. I was yeah. last time I looked. Now, what are we doing today, Pete? It is the DLI, but, but what's the uh, subject matter? Well, we've gone for one last river crossing the casino. All right. Yeah. Quite exciting. Yeah. Uh, it's getting to the end of the uh, of the Italian campaign for the Durhams at the moment. Uh, uh, where, where did we leave them? Where were they? Well, the, well they were out of the line, weren't they? Yeah. Time was rushing by and, and soon, all too soon. All too soon, Gary. It was time for the 16th DLI to leave the uh, the rest idyll. Idyll, Gary. Right, now, what the listeners don't know is the 347 attempts we had to say <laughs> idyll correctly. And... The fact that we had to ask my lovely Polly how you pronounced it. And we still can't agree. We still can't quite agree. I think I'm going for idyll, yeah, as in idyllic. Idyll. idyll. And it's my accent that's the issue. Oh, yeah. Exactly. Anyway, uh, the uh, they were going to leave the restful uh, idyll, idyll at uh, Montefiore and return to the front line. Yeah, they, new things though, new things, new, 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 new things. They'd uh, they got a new divisional uh, commander, uh, John Hawksworth, <coughs> the man with a stick, had been promoted and was in command now of X Corps, Tenth Corps, and uh, in his place was a New Zealand officer, Major General Stephen Weir. Oh, that's mm. him. Yeah. Oh. Uh, now uh, they'd also while one three the whole of one three nine brigade, that's sixteenth DLI's uh, brigade. They'd been out of rest. There'd been a lot of progress. Uh, we're not going to go into this much, but the fourth, uh, we, we'll just pay ref because these lads are fighting on our behalf, so to speak. Fourth division and tenth Indian division have been battering their way uh, across the River Ronca, and they'd taken Forley, and uh, for the rest of forty sixth division, the other two brigades had got across the Montone River. But where should we pick up the story? Well. On the 6th of November 1944, the 16th DLI moved up to the concentration area at La Frata. Now, on arrival, the men found it was another case of hurry up and wait. Did you ever find that in the army? I did a lot of hurry up and waiting. Um, now, as cells, a, mainly. <laughs> as a session of training followed with work on tank infantry cooperation 
a flamethrower de- demonstration, and the practicalities of winching a two-pounder anti-tank gun across a river. What would happen if we tried to winch a two-pounder anti-tank gun across a river? There'd be a two-pounder anti-tank gun in the river. <laughs> I think so, too. Now, it was only on the night of the 14th of November that the 16th airline moved forward oh, to relieve days. the 128th Brigade in the San Verano sector. Oh, yeah. Now, th- there's been a change, a, a geographical change. How would you, de- how would you define this uh, geographical change, Gary? With the word Norden. No, that's not the word I'm looking for. There's another word. Well, they were on the Great Northern Plain... Of Italy. Yeah, uh, so no more ridges, eh? Hey, so no more ridges. Any rivers? Oh, plenty of rivers and canals, and that still dogged their progress. The weather was also a considerable handicap, as it seemed with rain. Uh, sorry, it teemed with rain. Seemed Some, it seemed to teem. <laughs> seemed to teem. Uh, with rain, and the, uh, the drenched men were soon marching ankle deep in glutinous mud. Do you think they complained? Never. Never. They Never. would have observed an awful lot. Yeah. Now... After that pregnant pause, on the 16th of November, their comrades in the Leicesters put in a concerted attack accompanied by tanks pushing towards the Casina River. Now, in fact, that, that goes pretty well at first. They even crossed the Casina. Uh, what I'm saying, Gary, what I'm saying, what could happen after you have a bit of a success? Well, then, surprisingly, uh, the inevitable German counterattack hold them back. Yeah, right. Now, in support... Major Laurie Stringer, who we met in the last podcast, had been ordered to attack a group of farmhouses near the casino, which was codenamed Sleep. Mm. Now, the attack was to start at 13.30, and it was a fearsome prospect. And you're going to tell us what Major Laurie Stringer says. My platoon... Sorry. (laughs) Good start. Okay, I'm on top form today. My plan was to send one platoon to an intermediate objective to make that firm and then take the other two platoons slightly left flanking round on the left hand side supported by fire from the intermediate position and I had a troop of tanks under command. The intermediate objective was a group of very ramshackle buildings which were hardly standing. They were almost raised to the ground. Very little cover at all but it was slightly raised from the rest of the surrounding countryside. There was something like 800 yards of almost open country they had to travel over to get to my objective. Artillery and mortar support were to come down just after H hour. Just prior to crossing the start line, the Desert Air Force were to come over and dive bomb the enemy lines. What could go wrong? Well, what happened then was incredibly irritating to the long-suffering infantry. And uh, this is once more Major Laurie Stringer. Of B Company. Oh, sorry, yes, of B Company. You're quite right. Uh, Unfortunately... (laughs) Guess what I'm going to say now. The Desert Air Force mistook our line for the enemy line. And they came over a minute before HR and dive-bombed and machine-gunned my forward position, which was most unpleasant. Dennis Worrell, that's Colonel Dennis Worrellgas, who happened to be forward, saw what was happening. And he stood in the middle of the road, waving his stick at these aircraft to try and let them know they were machine-gunning the wrong line. There he stood in the middle of that Italian road. He hadn't got a steel helmet on and he was unperturbed and really didn't bat an eyelid. Fortunately, they didn't create many casualties as far as my company was concerned and we were able to move forward. Nonetheless, it was a distraction and an unpleasant incident at a time when everybody was keyed up to go forward. Yes, a bloody yes. It would be. Especially if you were one of the not many casualties. The dive bombers were flying low at eye-blurring speeds 
often with relatively poor visibility, and they were faced with a fluid situation on the ground. In these circumstances, mistakes were inevitable and hence frequent, but they were no less annoying for all that. It's a bit like my mistakes in reading things. Yes. Inevitable, but no less annoying for all that. Notwithstanding this interruption, the attack went in as planned at 13.30, with Stringer watching anxiously from his headquarters. Bill Ver or William Ver, to give him his Sunday name, was far more anxious. He was one of those going over the top, and he soon had plenty to worry about. And he'd been promoted from, usually, I think he'd been a corporal before, hadn't he? He's now Sergeant William Ver. Did you get promotion to Sergeant ever during your long and distinguished military career? Well, I had three stripes, just not necessarily at the same time. Oh, so we'll count that as a yes. This is what Bill Ver, Bill, <coughs> we set off. We got almost as far as this pile of rubble. That would be the intermediate building Stringer was on about. It had been an outbuilding of some sort that had been hit. There was a long drainage ditch running right the way from our house past this rubble. Then they opened fire on us, so we dropped. There was a tank at the side of us. The ground was that soft, he got bogged down. He he couldn't move. We got down and had a smoke. (laughs) You couldn't do anything else. There were snipers firing from these houses. We had two brothers in our company, both in the same section. It was while we were among this rubble that the young girl lifted his head up and the sniper hit him straight through the head. His brother was there at the side of him. Wow, that that must have been a bit of a moment, to say the least. Stringer soon realised that things had gone awry. He became concerned that the second lieutenant charged with leading the attack was not pressing forward. And this is once more Major Laurie Stringer of B Company. Yeah, we took names out of this. Uh, I watched with my binoculars to see what sort of progress he was making. After he'd gone about three, four hundred yards, he stopped and there was no further move forward. I couldn't understand why this was. I said, Sergeant Major, I'm going forward to see why Mr X, his platoon, is not moving forward. Perhaps he was the father of one of those South Nazis ours. Sorry. Uh, I went forward to where his platoon was lying along a bank and I said to him, Why aren't you moving forward? He said, I can't, sir. I said, Why not? He said, We're heavily pinned down by fire. I said, You've got a troop of tanks on your right giving you fire support. You are to move forward. He said, I can't move forward. I can't do it. I took him by the arm. I, I didn't get excited. I said, You must move forward. With that, he left me and ran in the opposite direction. I had given him a direct order. That was disobeying the order of a senior officer in battle. It was unforgivable. It was a very, very tricky situation. I was worried because the men had seen this incident and I wondered what their reaction would be. I decided to go myself. Hale and Kent were the Bren gunners on the ground beside me. and I said, well, I'm going on to the objective. Hale turned to Kent and said... If he can go, we'll go. We moved forward slowly and got onto, our, onto the objective. I couldn't raise my head because as soon as you moved, the machine guns started opening up again. That is where I saw a small family of rabbits around their mother just nearby. And I said to myself, if I get out of this situation, I will never complain again. That's quite, that's just great. I can imagine these rabbits go. Now they reached the farmhouses, but it was hopeless. 
There was no chance of holding on if, or rather when, the Germans counterattacked. And uh, Major Laurie Stringer goes on to say this. Suddenly, on my right, I saw quite a heavy contingent of Germans moving forward, and there was no doubt about the fact that they were going to counterattack me on that position. It became untenable. There was a ditch running just away from this intermediate objective, and I took the men into this ditch. We were able to crawl along the ditch and into a deep pond some way away. One of the tanks had been knocked out, but the other two were quite superb. They didn't pull back. They fired everything they'd got and covered our retreat back to this pond. We eventually got back at about 1,700 to the start line. Wow. Now, Bill Ver, William Ver, remembered that sodden ditch in considerable detail. His experience in it were a strange mixture of terror and surrealistic humour. Good old Bill Ver. And despite your throat, you're going to tell us what Sergeant William yeah. Ver of 12 Platoon B Company says. The only way back was along this ditch, which was half full of water. The Germans were firing, clipping the top of the ditch. When I got in, the driver from the tank was in front of me. <laughs> he was stretched out full length. You couldn't get up because they were firing across the top. They used to wear like a boiler suit and it was gradually filling with water. I said, go on. He said, I can't move. I'm like a Michelin man. So, or, or like a Gary, if he'd known you. I pulled his trousers out of his gaiters and said, right, unzip it and crawl out. I held his trouser bottoms and he crawled out of his tank suit. He had just his underpants underneath, <laughs> on underneath and a revolver. <laughs> that, that was how we finished up at the other end of the ditch. We were relieved then, and we were in these houses drying our clothes off. One of the lads went out to parade or something, and he just had his overcoat, long johns and boots. The company sergeant major said, I'll put you on a charge, you're improperly dressed. You haven't got your hat on. <laughs> he was kidding, really. <laughs> I bet he was. <laughs> I just love that story. I just picture this chap gradually crawling out of his tank suit. Is that a revolver in your underpants, or are you just pleased to see me? You've been waiting to say that. Now, more serious were the consequences for the inexperienced young officer who'd lost his nerve. He'd shown signs of mental strain before by overreacting to the sounds of distant machine gun fire. He would subsequently be court-martialed. But in truth, it was clear that he should not have been on the front-line duty with uh, the infantry in the first place. Yeah, we've got to have sympathy for people like that. I mean, I mean, how would we react? I've got a good idea that I'd be overreacting to the sound of distant machine gun fire as well. Um, no. <clears throat> so what happens next, Gary? You can have a little bit of chat now. Well, at 1900, on the 16th of November, the 16th DLI were relieved by the 2nd 4th Coily, King's King, Own Yorkshire, Yorkshire Light Infantry. Infantry, and sent back for three days as the Brigade Reserve based at Villa Grappa. Now, the 46th Division are now faced with the necessity of breaching the outer defences of the German Gerhild line. They seem to have a lot of lines, the Germans. Uh, in particular, the, these defences are, are, are based, they're rock solid on the Casino River. Uh, so who's, who's going to lead the way? Well, the 139th Brigade was well to the fore. First, on the 20th of November, the 5th Leicesters launched a successful operation to capture the village of Castiglione <laughs> on high ground on the Allied side of the Casina, assisted by a crushing artillery bombardment coupled with the bombing of the Desert Air Force. Then, a couple of days later, uh, 21st of uh, November, the 16th DLI push on to the Casina River. Now, <clears throat> this is very interesting because 
that this is where we, we, we meet uh, Russell Collins again. So, uh, Lieutenant Russell Collins. We've had a lot about him. He's been the hero, hasn't he? And let's, let's just see how he's doing. At this point, he's in command of the Bren Carrier Platoon. Uh, and they've been posted to a farmhouse close to the riverbank. And, and, and you can see from there a group of farm buildings occupied by the Germans just 200 yards across the river Casino. Uh, now, if they were going to make an attack in the near future, as a bright young officer, what do you think Collins wanted? Well, he was absolutely keen to establish the details of the opposing defensive positions. He wants to know what he, what's there, what so he's what facing. Do, what does he do? Well, this is Lieutenant Russell Collins of the Carrier Platoon. We tried to sally forth to make an exploratory probing patrol across the river, and they opened fire and drove us back. What we observed was that the enemy were dug in on the far side of the river. In other words, they weren't just in the buildings. Then I went upstairs in the farmhouse to look through a window to try and locate their machine gun posts. I was standing there with my binoculars searching the ground and suddenly there was a great clattering and a long burst of machine gun fire which spouted all around this window, broke through the, uh, the lathe and plaster walls on either side, through the window, and none of them hit me. They might have done. You get to the point where you think, my gosh, I'm leading a charmed life. Mm, gosh, I'm not sure he'd have said that. No, I'm not <laughs> sure he did either. Now, when night fell, he led another patrol to try and sneak across the river, and he goes on to say this. We got down into the riverbed. Then it was clear that there was a German, German machine gun dug in only about 20 yards the other side. We were in the riverbed, so we were all right. We had some grenades, and I gave orders that we would try and knock this thing out with the grenades. There were two or three of us trying to lob these grenades into the machine gun post. Every so often they would fire back, so we had to nip up very quickly, throw our grenades and get down again. We did that alternatively, and there was a soldier standing next to me. I can see him very clearly. He was closer to me than you are now, about three or four feet away. I am. Now, turn and turn about, we stood up and threw a grenade. When we had done that four or five times, there was a searing burst of fire when it was his turn. It went right through his head. That was really shattering. He was obviously dead before he hit the ground. That, again, was the luck of the draw, you see. I had a 50-50 chance there. Now, it's interesting that Collins is starting to think about his mortality, mortality. about his look, about how lucky he'd been. And we'll come back to this, because this is a, a theme. This is going to be a theme of the podcast. But there's another, there's another bit of a hero of the podcast that this is, you know, going to be the end, not the end for, but because I interviewed him. But what happens next? Well, that night, and I think you're referring to Bill Ver, had a, a, a disastrous ending for him. His luck finally ran out when he was ordered to accompany Lieutenant Gray on a recce patrol. And this is Sergeant William Ver. Yeah, he's in 12 platoon B company. He says this, We went down the road, then we had to cross a deep dike up to your chest in water. We followed the path at the other side of the dike. Went along a gully with a steep embankment up on the right. Then the ground dropped away into a valley. The Germans had cleared everything, so they'd got a field of fire. Cut all the trees and bushes down and chucked them into this bit of a ditch. We were walking on, and I was leading man. I didn't want to be, but I had to, because I was leading the patrol. We were going along this gully, and it sort of bore round to the right. As I went round, there was a dugout dug into this embankment. At the entrance was a German sat on a chair, bored to death. We both saw each other at the same time. We were both for a second flabbergasted. He jumped up, ran inside and hid. 
I thought, I'm not coming running in after you. You've probably gone in and picked your rifle up waiting for me. I shouted at him to come out. He wouldn't. I could hear him inside. He was frightened to bloody death, whimpering, probably expecting me to throw a grenade in. I shouted at him to come out. I, I said I wouldn't shoot. Nick Schneislin. Schneislin. How would you say that, Gary? Well, Schleesen, because it's misspelled. Oh, right. <laughs> Is that me? Yes. But at the top of the banking, they also had a bro- bloke in a slit trench. He popped over with his schmeiser and hit me. I immediately fired back at him. His head was just stuck over the top. Then I jumped. I, I leapt into all this brushwood in case he fired again. <coughs> he never fired again. I don't know whether I hit him or not. I knew I'd been hit, and I said to the lads, give us a pull up out of this ditch, I've been hit. The officer, that would be Lieutenant Gray, then said, you'd better get back. <coughs> a couple of lads walked me back. I said, have a look, just just see if me balls are all right. I've been hit at the back of the leg, and it had come out, grazed me scrotum into the right leg, and then it must have hit the bone. They got me at the side of the road, ripped me pants and said, you're all right. Then two lads came running down with a stretcher. I climbed on it and they carried me back to the farmhouse where we'd set off from. Wow. I mean, you can see that's a lot of them mentioned they worry about certain parts. Now, he was evacuated to a casualty clearing station where the bullet was removed from his leg. After hospitalisation and a short period of convalescence, he would rejoin the 16th DLI in April 1945. And at this point, we'll take a short break. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The big attack all along the line by 10th Corps was launched at 2000 hours on the 22nd of November. Major Laurie Stringer was attacking with his B Company on the right, while A Company went in on his left. In every way, the prospects were grim. And this is once more, you're working very hard, Major Laurie Stringer of B Company. It was an appalling night. It was raining cats and dogs. Just near to my start line, which was just south of the Casino River, there were two enormous haystacks. The Germans set light to these haystacks and they blazed away, lighting up the area for hundreds of yards in all directions. The plan was for a barrage to come down just before I crossed the start line and then move forward, a creeping barrage, onto my objective, a group of buildings called Caller, the other side of the river. (coughs) The ground led down to the river slowly and then the river was about 20 yards wide. That's all. It was a very small river. But it was quite deep, strangely enough. Then the ground rose slightly on the other side, 400, 500 yards, the other side of the river to Caller. Wow. 
Now, at this stage in the campaign, many of the men were at the end of their tether, but officers couldn't afford to be overly sympathetic in moments of crisis, as Stringer demonstrates. It's quite harsh. The barrage started and a few of the shells dropped short. This didn't help matters, and one of my men started screaming at the top of his voice. Absolutely hysterical. It only wants someone to do that, and it has a very adverse effect upon the rest of the company, who were already tensed up. I went up to him, caught hold of him by the front of his battle dress, and said, Stop that noise! It didn't make a scrap of difference at all to him. He just kept on screaming. Imagine it. Rain, two haystacks alight, ground soggy, going into the attack, and there was this man creating an unpleasant situation. I knew there was only one thing I could do. I hit him with my fist on the chin, (coughs) hard enough to stop him. I never regretted doing that. If I was faced with the same situation again, I would do exactly the same. It was the only way that I was able to stop him. As far as he was concerned, that was the end of his fighting. He went back as a battle exhaustion case, and I didn't ever see him again. I find that very interesting. And funnily enough, you think about it, what what else could he do as an officer? There was a similar uh, officer in their Laugh or Cry book, wasn't there? Yeah. I think a brigadier. Can't remember. Um, no, nor can I actually. I'm well, nice I'm glad you raised that, Gary. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's helped a lot. <laughs> now, time passed slowly, but at last the time came time to go over the top. And this is, once more, Major Laurie Stringer. At HR, we moved forward. I was in the middle of the company with two platoons up and one back. David Buchanan, a Scottish subaltern, was commanding one of the other two platoons. He was an excellent officer. We moved down to the river. There was machine gun fire, spandaus. They were firing the whole time. We got across the river. It was not easy because the Germans had positions that were covering the river and the company on the left weren't able to cross at all because the Germans had spandaus covering almost every 30 to 40 yards of the river. I was right up and I said, David... Take your platoon on to caller. See what you can find out and let me know. David went forward and there then commenced some quite heavy fighting. Wow. With A Company apparently failing to get across the casino, B Company were vulnerable to counter-attack. Corporal Kenneth Lovell had been sent back to B Company headquarters and was there when Corporal Pettifer arrived with a situation report from David Buchanan. Now, according to Lovell, Stringer sent him off to pass orders to fall back to Buchanan as they were very exposed in their forward position towards Caller. And this is Corporal Kenneth Lovell of B Company. Is it me, Gary? No, it's me, Pete. (laughs) Oh. We set off, went over the river, and I fell in a bomb hole going over. I'm not a very good swimmer, and I came up spitting water. What I didn't realise at the time was that my Tommy gun had gone into the clay mud. Having got out of the river, we went forward and got to the edge of this ring of light, almost like daylight, from haystacks on fire. When the Germans withdrew from farmhouses, they used to set fire to the haystacks to give their mortars and artillery an aiming point if they needed to counter-attack. The stacks really were blazing at this farmhouse we'd taken. There was about 150 yards of really open ground in front of the farmhouse. We jumped into a bomb hole and I said, Right, hang about, Pettifer, let's see what's happening. We don't know whether the platoon's still there. Pettifer said to me, I can hear Sergeant Thompson over there. A little chap called Joe Thompson, I don't think he would have been much more than five foot two inches, he had a very deep voice, a Yorkshire accent. I listened, and sure enough it sounded like Thompson. So I said to Pettifer, 
Keep me covered. I'll go over and ask Joe where Lieutenant Buchanan and the rest of the platoon is. He stayed in the bomb hole and kept me covered. I crept forward 100 yards, maybe 150 yards, and there was this short chap, and I couldn't make it out. It was in the dark, outside the ring of fire. But it sounded a deep voice. I thought, oh, Joe Thompson. Then I got up, walked up and tapped him on the shoulder, and I said, hey, Joe, where's Mr Buchanan? The German soldier turned round and said, Ist ein Tommy, Handy Hoch. Well, I pulled the trigger of my Tommy gun and it virtually exploded. The breech block and the covering blew back just past my arms. It's lucky I wasn't holding it in my stomach, otherwise it would have taken my insides out. The gases couldn't escape because it had been stuffed up with clay. So I was taken prisoner. Yeah, it's quite, quite interesting that the, the bloke tries to take him prisoner and he tries to shoot him. Um, but there you go uh, his, his adventures aren't over though are they young Ken Lovell no and he says this I was sent off with a German in front of me and a German behind me they were taking me to their battalion headquarters as we went along this road our artillery put down a stonk which was supposed to have preceded our attack on the next objective it really was a frightening stonk it stopped for a moment and we got into the farmyard and this stonk opened up again right round the farmhouse. I took a flying dive and I dived headfirst into a bloody cesspit. The shelling stopped and I got out. I stank to high heaven. I scraped what I could off of me. They bunged me in a room with some straw, a sentry outside, and locked the door. That's how the stonk made him stink. Yes. Now Lovell would spend the rest of the war in a German prisoner of war camp, but even in the first few hours of that long trial, he had a strange insight into the... uh, Odd links between infantrymen on opposite sides in a vicious war. Yeah, it's quite interesting. There is a comrade, a sort of comradeship when they're not trying to kill each other. And this is Corporal Kenneth Lovell of B Company. The corporal, who was in command of the company that captured me, I don't think he could have been much more than 17 and a half or 18. They were all kids. I wasn't very old myself. I was only 19 and a half. I was very young looking. But beside me, these looked like school kids. They really were very young indeed. Fervent Nazis, obviously. I was asked how many men were holding the position, various other questions, and I feigned to understand no German whatsoever. They didn't persist. Apart from pinching my fags, my watch, that sort of, uh, the sort of things we did when we took German prisoners, they were quite reasonable to me. It's amazing. You're enemies, you'll kill each other, and yet there is between infantrymen fighting each other, there's a nevertheless a bond. It's the bond of all being in the shit together. And smelling like it, in his case. Yes. Now, but, <laughs> but now, so I can, I can tell... Right, so he's been sent forward to get in touch with Buchanan. He hasn't. So, so how's Laurie Stringer reacted? What's he doing? Well, Laurie Stringer's becoming more and more frustrated whilst waiting for news from Buchanan's platoon. So he decides to go himself to see what was happening. Now, when he gets near to Caller, his experiences were not dissimilar to Ken Lovell's. He was just marginally luckier. Lucky Stringer, they used to call him. And this is Major Laurie Stringer. I said, I'm going forward to see what's happening. I got up to Caller and I went round into a farmyard. I saw a section of men in a slit trench or bomb hole. I got to within 20 yards and I shouted out to them, Which section are you? Imagine my surprise when seven German helmets popped their heads above this hole. I just managed to gain the cover of some buildings on my left-hand side. The Germans counterattacked pretty strongly, and they drove us back to the other side of the river. 
We had to retreat. There was some heavy and very confused fighting. Grenades and small arms fire. Small arms fire mainly. It was in the middle of the night. I think it was a very disorganised retreat, really. Sometimes you just don't know what's going on. I just don't know what's going on. I, yeah, Fred Truman used to say that a lot. When the men realised what the situation was and the enemy started advancing, I gave the order for the platoons to re retreat across the river. I got into the river again and the water was up to my chest. We, back, we got back across the river and the fighting died down. Things began to stabilise. So another failed attack, really. As he took stock of the situation, he became aware that Buchanan was missing. Stringer may have been a little stiff in his manner, but he certainly didn't lack courage. And this is once more Major Laurie Stringer. My men told me that David Buchanan had been hit and I decided I would try and find him. Circumstances were with me because I, <coughs> I took two men in a stretcher and there, just my side of the river, he must have got back somehow or other, I saw David lying in a furrow. He couldn't move. I went up to him and I heard then the best words I've heard during the whole of my military career. Sir, I knew you'd come. You might say it's sentimental. You might say there wasn't much importance to that statement. But to me, there was. He'd been shot through the leg and we were able to get him onto this stretcher and back to safety. Dear David, he was a splendid officer and that was the end of his fighting days. And and I, I, I had the highest respect for uh, Laurie Stringer. Funnily enough, Ken, Ken Lovell, the part made by you, hated him uh, with no good reason that from our perspective we can see. Uh, as I say, Stringer could come across as stiff or pompous if you like, but he was a good officer, I think. And you can understand why somebody saying, I knew you'd come, would mean so much. Oh, yes. You can actually understand yeah. that. That's the first thing he says when he sees him. You see, I can imagine if I was lying wounded the other side, I'd be lying. Where have you the... been? Where have you been? <laughs> or, I knew you wouldn't come. I knew you'd say someone. <laughs> yes. Now, back um, to the attack. It had yeah, been a yeah. failure, but the 5th Sherwood Foresters, to their right, had far more luck and established a firm bridgehead across the casino. We've had this before, haven't we? The Durhams aren't the be-all and end-all. We know that. And often in an attack, it, even if the Durhams fail, there's other units who are doing the job. And to, it's a collective effort, isn't it? This uh, enabled an arc bridge to be thrown across next What's to the an bridge, arc bridge demolished previ previously by the Germans. It's a bridge in an arc. It's one of them, like a Bailey bridge, but different, I expect. Yeah. <laughs> Neither of us know, do we? <laughs> no. <laughs> Now, aided by this, on the 23rd of November, C Company, supported by tanks, exploited through the bridgehead in the direction of Korla, and the village was finally captured. The whole of the 16th DLI then advanced on Casa Bruciati. I'm glad you got that one. Now, by this time, let's get to the, the, the bit we were talking about. Russell Collins has begun to realise that he'd drawn too deeply on his bank of personal courage. When I was a student, I often was overdrawn, but it's different, isn't it? Um, he'd made his reputation, hadn't he? What was his reputation? You've played his part, you've read all his pieces. What, 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 what were you in those parts? Well, he, he was thought of as a daring young officer. Winkler Collins, I think they referred to him as, didn't they? And he was seemingly afraid of nothing and always leading his men from the front by example. But it was, as you say, getting all a bit too much. And this is Lieutenant Russell Collins of the Carrier Platoon Support Company. From my own experience, one has got a reserve or pool of courage and endurance. 
At the beginning of the campaign in September 1943, I didn't worry about it at all. But by the end of November 1944, rather than saying, come on, chaps, follow me, I was rather saying, now look, I'm going to put my headquarters here and you go there and you go there which many people had done from the beginning, but that was not my way. It comes to some sooner uh, than others. The thing that really weighed on my mind, it's sheer rationality really, the number of officers and soldiers who'd been killed, wounded or missing from the start of the Italian campaign until the end. As a platoon commander, I was in the front echelon the whole time. I mean, I used to regard a company headquarters as a place of comparative safety because it was 100 yards behind. You reached a point, come in now, your time is up. You think, well, look, this can't go on. Everybody else that I could think of had been killed. There was nobody who'd survived as a platoon commander as long as I had. And it weighs on your mind in the end that your turn must be just around the corner. I think that's so brilliantly expressed. Uh, and... Uh... It all comes uh, the, the next phase of the fighting. He's ordered to attack a small group of farm buildings. Uh, and if you remember, he's just had two narrow escapes. Remember the smash window you were told us about? And remember the riverbed when he popped up throwing grenades and the bloke next to him at 50-50 chance? Well, he just find, he just comes to almost the end. He, he just he can't go on. So what does he say? I had to make the plan to do it. I remember agonising with myself, but I decided on that occasion I really couldn't. I couldn't be the first man forward there. I'd done it so many times, and I'd really got to the end of my tether then. Had it been a rifle platoon, I certainly would have led it, or been very near, but I did have four sections, each commanded by a sergeant. If there ever was a man who never showed any fear, it was Sergeant Chilvers who led that attack then. We very quickly followed up with my platoon headquarters and the other sections, surrounded the place and got right in. There was not much firing and the first thing you have to do is to secure the place, exploit through the objective, make sure they have not just gone back 20 yards and are waiting to jump in on you again. Then you immediately make an all-round defence by saying, Right you, Sergeant, cover that sector, from there to there. Sergeant, you cover that sector over there. Go and find some fire positions and I'll come round in a minute to see you. Off they went and then I started on my rounds. It was dusk and I came round one corner and a voice said, Halt! Who goes there? Bang! All in one movement. It was a carrier driver who was shaking like a leaf and had his rifle at the hip. He was called Yorkie Streeton and that was the last shot that was ever fired at me in anger in Italy. Once again it missed. And that's why I'm here and able to tell you the tale. And that's amazing. The first time he's really cautious and he's nearly shot by one of his own men. You can't do right for doing wrong or wrong for doing right. Mm. Shortly afterwards, blessed relief as the 128th Brigade took their place in the forefront of the advance on the Limoni River. On the 27th of November, the 16th DLI moved back to Forley. Now here, there's a bit of a, just, just a sign that their luck might be changing, that, that, that good things or better things might lie ahead. And this is Lieutenant Lionel Dodd of the Mortar Platoon Support Company. What does Lionel say? Word came through that the New Zealanders had captured a, a vinery where they made the wine. They were the biggest wine butts I'd ever seen. Talk about a butt of Malmsley. They were all as tall as this room and they must have held thousands of gallons. I took a carrier up there and as many empty four-gallon jerry cans as I could find. There were numerous drunk New Zealanders. 
Where do you want it, sport? This New Zealander said. He got this two-inch pipe and he said, Hold your can. I held the can out and, of course, half of it went over me. My army issue Macintosh was never quite the same. (laughs) I got about 24 gallons of vermouth. We were drinking it for quite some time. As a lovely story. And uh, that was fuelled by said vermouth. There began to be a lot of rumours. Is that unusual in the Alma rumours? No, not at all. But uh, this time something new really was upon them. Something they could never have guessed. What? What, Gary? What? They were off to... Athens. Dun, dun, dun. That's in Greece. Oh, yes. Well done. (laughs) Geography with Pete. They've got marbles. Well, that's, uh, that's the end of that episode, Peter. Another exciting episode. Uh, and I'm quite looking forward to the next. Yeah, yeah. They're well, they're in Greece. What what could be going wrong there? I'm sure it's lovely. They're on their holidays, aren't they? I would have thought so. No, no trouble in Greece. Surely not. Cheers, Pete. Cheers, Gary. Thanks for listening to the show. Blah, blah, blah. If you'd like to support blah, us, blah, you can now buy us a coffee. Blah, blah, Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash PGMH. Or visit www.blahblahblahblahblah. And we'd be jolly grateful. Cheers. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?